are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Our reading today is from John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Waiting. It's the theme of Advent, isn't it? We've been waiting for the birth of our Savior, waiting for his arrival, waiting for Christmas. And when you're an adult, it can seem hard to slow time down. And when you're a kid, you have the opposite problem. It seems like we're waiting forever. Our daughter Zoe is in second grade, and this week she picked out a Christmas gift for her teacher. And I tell you, we had to run an intervention because she was just going to take it immediately to school. She thought it was unbearable that she would have to wait one more week to give this stuffed animal to her teacher. And so here we are at the fourth and final Sunday in Advent. Yesterday we learned that the fourth and final of something, say a fourth quarter, is never too late. Somebody asked me this morning, how many Vikings references will be in the sermon? <laughs> That's it. I'm just getting it out of the way right now. <laughs> oh man, what that team puts us through. <laughs> However you got here to this Sunday, whether it has been easy peasy or frazzled and frantic, you're here. The fourth Sunday in Advent. And for four Sundays now, we have studied through the first chapter of John's Gospel. It's his version, his style of telling the Christmas story. And I've selected verse 14 as sort of the standalone culmination of our study. After verses on darkness and light, testify and believe, receiving in faith and becoming a child of God, we come to verse 14. What I'd suggest is that we can savor this. This little verse, the one Donna said, she's never had one that easy, but that we would savor it. Kind of like if your Christmas shopping is all done and now you have time and you're kind of just out moseying around looking for that last Christmas gift to purchase. So I'd like to begin by just in prayer asking the Lord to prepare us finally for Christmas. So let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you teach us above all to wait on you, and you are never late. You see and know all things, Lord, and you work in the fullness of time, and you're making us ready. And so we ask now on this final Sunday of Advent that you would help us to set aside all the things that are to come this week, whatever we have to get done, whatever is on our minds, and that we would be attentive to hear your voice this morning and receive the nourishment of your word. Would you be at work, Lord, in our hearts and minds, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's begin. As we pick up this verse, we have John taking us back to how he started the whole chapter, his whole book in verse 1, when he said, In the beginning was the word. That was back on November 27th the first Sunday in Advent. We talked at that time about how John uses Word with a capital W to refer to Jesus. 
And so he's saying Jesus was there at creation. In the beginning was the word. Actually, before creation. And now he gets to verse 14, and it's about Christmas. So John picks up the word again, and he says, The word became flesh. In other words, the Son of God, Jesus, became flesh. And this one-sentence summary gives us a definition of a word that we run into, at least in a faith setting this time of year, the word incarnation. Certainly, one of the best Christmas carols in English that we have is Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which was written by Charles Wesley long ago. On this note, sometimes on the way to school, we'll turn on Christmas Cool 108, And there's plenty of obnoxious Christmas songs, too, that are out there. And sometimes it's actually good music, but with lyrics that are just very lacking. So Alicia Keys, I heard her interviewed. She's got a new Christmas album that was released this year. It's called Santa Baby. And she felt like apparently that song needed to be done again. And just to remind you of some of the quality lyrics, Santa Baby, I want a yacht. And really, that's not a lot been an angel all year, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Cue Charles Wesley on the incarnation. You ready? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And the whole song is loaded with stuff like that. Incarnate featured in that verse comes from two Latin words, in and caro, that means in the flesh. And that's what happened when God the Son came to earth and was born as a baby. As we've seen in earlier Sundays in John 1, we said God the Son has always existed before time and creation for all eternity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity or What Charles Wesley says is the Godhead. It's just another way of saying our triune God. And God the Son was not in a body. He was not in human form before Christmas. But when God sent his Son to save us, he sent him then in the flesh. Philippians 2 says he was, talking about Jesus, he was in very nature God, but he made himself nothing By taking on the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness. So what does that mean? We talked about this with high school students on Wednesday night over crumble cookies, which were amazing, thanks to one of our adult leaders. And we talked about this very question. The Son of God was not born on Christmas. He became incarnate at Christmas. He took on flesh, and he became one of us. Now, did he stop being God when he became a baby. Did he stop being God? No, he didn't. He was fully God and fully man. That doesn't mean like a blending of the two, like he's 50% God and 50% man. No, it's 100% and 100%. The word became flesh, it says. I really liked how one writer put it. He said, Jesus is all that God is in all of his perfections, And all that we humans are, except in terms of sin. It's a great description. Jesus is all that God is, in all of his perfections, and all that we humans are, except in terms of sin. So that's the what of the incarnation, but how about the why? Why did God send his son in the flesh? 
Why was that necessary? Well, because only God can provide atonement for sin. Only God could reach in and fix our problem. But only a human can bear our penalty for sin and die in our place on the cross. What's more is that God, when he comes in the flesh, he actually takes on our sorrows and burdens. Isn't that something? He takes them on himself and he takes them to the cross where sin is defeated and death is defeated and the Bible says you and I are raised up to new life. So let's go back to Charles Wesley once more. Another verse. He said, Mild he lays his glory by. That's Philippians 2, right? He made himself nothing. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that we no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth born to give us second birth. And then the chorus, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Santa baby cannot hold a candle to that. All right, well, let's add the next part of the sentence. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And you see on the slide a picture of a tent. And that's very much in keeping with this verse. Because made his dwelling in the original, if you and I were Greek readers, we would read the verb skenao. Skenao. And it means, literally, he pitched his tent. That's what happened at Christmas. God came and pitched his tent. Bible scholars also recognize in this language that it is pointing back to the Old Testament and how God dwelled among his people in what's called the tabernacle. You might remember that God's people in the Old Testament, they were nomadic for this long season under Moses. God sent Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, but the people don't trust God to take them into the promised land, and so they wander for 40 years. But God is still with his people even as they're wandering, even as they've failed to trust him. And he wants them to see that, to have this visible reminder that he is with them. And so he instructs them to build, to make a tabernacle, which is a tent. He says to Moses in Exodus 25, 8, Then have them make a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a tent for me, and I will dwell among them. And so wherever these nomadic people would wander and travel, they would pitch the tent. And it would be a place to go and worship and a place to meet with God. Sometimes it's called the tent of meeting. And they had this visible reminder that God is with us. We're not wandering around on our own, but he's with us. Fast forward to Christmas, and what does all this sound like? It was featured in the video. Emmanuel. God is with us. The word became flesh. And God pitched his tent among us. And we can see him. He's here. The message paraphrase. So we have Bible translations and another category is a paraphrase. And they can be very helpful if they're understood as a paraphrase. It captures this beautifully when it says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So that's our title that I selected for today. When God moved in. Because we have this reminder that we had moved out on our relationship with God. We moved out when we chose sin. But God in His grace, He comes and pursues us. He doesn't leave us to suffer and die, but He comes to earth in the flesh to be with us, and more than that, to set us free. 
So if you want to see what God is like, if you want to know his love and forgiveness, if you want to be set free from what plagues or pummels you, then the Bible is telling us you have to look at Jesus. All of Scripture, in fact, is pointing the way to Christ, who is the fulfillment of God's promises, the Savior of the world. An old commentator, favorite of mine, F.F. Bruce, said, when the Word became flesh, God became man. And that's what this is saying. All right, we'll keep moving. And we're going to come into the next part of the verse. Here's the next part of the verse. Still reflecting on the word, the reference here is to Jesus. John writes, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Now, glory is a good Bible word, but it gets a little fuzzy in our minds. What does it mean, really, to have seen his glory? What exactly are we seeing? Well, it means his visible presence. And seeing his visible presence, it's exuding God's awesome qualities, things like his holiness and his power and his majesty. So in the Old Testament, God's visible presence, his glory, is what people were seeing at places like the tabernacle and later the temple. So King David says in Psalm 63, I love this psalm. I memorized it across the summer when I was working the fish docks in Alaska. And I would take this psalm to work with me every day. And David says, I have seen you in the sanctuary, and I have beheld your power and your glory. But the thing about God's glory, his visible presence, is that we humans can never really look at it straight on. And the closest thing I can come up with as an analogy would be like the sun. You don't really look straight at the sun. At least your eye doctor would not recommend that you do that. But we see the sun, we're aware of the sun all the time, indirectly, in our peripheral vision. This morning, driving in here to church, it's a glorious morning. Or you see the sun maybe filtered by a cloud or at sunrise or sunset. So think about the story we cited two weeks ago when we looked at the line, no one has ever seen God, which was in verse 18, John 1, 18. Remember that Moses had asked God in Exodus 33 to see his glory, which is a pretty bold ask. He says, God, I'd like to see your glory. And God says to him, that's when he says for the first time, no one may see me and live. But he says, I will pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. But you cannot see my face, he says. You cannot see my glory head on. And so what does God do? It's this remarkable story where he tucks Moses into the cleft of a rock and he covers his eyes and he passes by and when he is sufficiently passed by, he allows Moses to catch a glimpse of his glory, his visible presence. But what really catches my attention this week as I thought about this is this slight shift in how God responds to what Moses actually asked for. So if we were reading in Exodus 33, you would see that Moses asked to see God's glory, but what does God say exactly in return? He says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. Just a slight one-word shift. So Moses says glory, and God says, sure, you can see my goodness. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that God's glory 
is tantamount to his goodness. Or perhaps another way to say it would be God's goodness is so good that it's his glory. His visible presence, it emanates from him. So back to John chapter 1. John has us thinking about the tabernacle. That's the words that he's using. That God sends his son in the flesh. He pitches his tent to dwell with us. And when we see Jesus, we have seen God's glory. I mean, think about this. What what happens? Moses has to have his eyes shielded. He can only catch an indirect glimpse. But in Jesus, we get to see God's glory face to face, head on. That this is what God is like. Colossians 1 says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you want to get to know who God is and what he's like, you have to get to know Jesus. That means you can't just skate through calling yourself a Christian as some cultural identifier. It means there's more to this than just doing religious things or attending a church service. That's more than just trying to be good, but you have to look goodness square in the face, spend time with Jesus, get to know him in the Bible and in the experience of worship, and then you can say, we have seen his glory. I have seen his glory, and it's awesome. And you'll be in the position then in your life to say, whatever else comes my way, whatever else happens to me in my life, I have seen the goodness of God. And that is enough. Job says, and Job lost a lot of things in his life. And Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And after my skin has been destroyed, Job is practically the only one still alive in his family. And he's saying, after I'm dead, yet in my flesh, he says, I will see God. I and not another. I will see him with my own eyes. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. There's Advent longing in there, isn't it? Is there Advent longing in you? Even the best of times that we can experience in our life cannot belie the brokenness that is in our lives or hide the sorrow that we see around us in the world. I was tucking in my son Lennox, our Ethiopian son, this week one night at bedtime. And just for whatever reason, in that moment, I was taken back to the orphanage where we first met him. He was three and a half at the time. And that orphanage was one of the most God-forsaken places I have ever been in my life. And I don't mean that theologically. Not that it was God-forsaken, but that was the overwhelming feeling that you had being in that place. A three-story building teeming with kids of all ages, from babies to teenagers, surrounded by wire fencing. They're all sleeping in metal beds, rocking themselves to sleep because there's no parent to rock them. And for a split second this week, at tuck-in time, I just thought of all the kids on planet Earth who in this moment are still suffering in some orphanage somewhere. And the thought was just absolutely overwhelming. That's my example. You could cite others. You've experienced that. A thought comes that is so overwhelming, so overpowering, you just have to push it away. And we usually don't have thoughts like that because our soul cannot contain it. It cannot endure it. 
we can't think about it. And it's one of the challenges of the connected age that we live in where you're in a 24-hour news cycle that keeps you up to minute on all of the terrible things that are happening all over our country and all over the world every single day. And so one of the things that can happen to us is that we just go numb to it. We just go numb. The Christian Book of the Year Award was just announced. And it went to a writer named Uche Anazor for his book, Overcoming Apathy, Gospel Hope for Those Who Struggle to Care. And Anazor knows that even as Christians, we just stop caring. And so his book was written as a wake-up call, a sympathetic wake-up call, helpful but clear, that is meant to rouse us out of our numbness and we rediscover the sound of our own longing for Christ and his coming in case the world has drowned it out. It is this Advent longing that is answered at Christmas. John says, we have seen his glory, the manifestation of his goodness. And now let's add the qualifiers as we keep going. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Now we started to pick up this one and only Son language a couple weeks ago in verse 18. And so this exact phrase, one and only Son, it appears twice in chapter 1. It's going to appear twice in chapter 3. And when the Bible is repeating things, this is like a Bible highlighter saying, pay attention to this. This is important. And amidst all these other Old Testament allusions, we might start to ask ourselves, especially if you were a reader back then, you're a Jewish reader, you start to ask yourself, well, where have we seen this before? Where else in the Bible is there a father and his one and only son? And the answer is Abraham and Isaac. And not just Abraham and Isaac generally, but specifically in Genesis 22. That's where God tests Abraham by commanding him to sacrifice his son. It's a harrowing account, and it was one of the first sermons that I ever gave in seminary. And maybe it was a harrowing sermon to have to listen to as being one of my very first ones, but it's just a fascinating story. Genesis 22, and I'll I'll remind us a little bit of the text, but we have this explicit mention of the father and his only son. Genesis 22, 2 is the first time we run into it. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And Abraham can hardly believe his ears. I mean, this is the promised son that he and Sarah had waited a lifetime to have, but there was no denying the voice of God. He had clearly spoken. And so Abraham takes his son up Mount Moriah, and he ties him to the altar. You've got to read the story if you don't know it. And the knife is up in the air, and God intervenes. Verse 12, he says, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, here it is again, your only son. And then verse 16 of Genesis 22, we run into it a third time. It's the Bible highlighter. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you. And so here's John writing about God's one and only son. And his readers would have been taken right back to Abraham and Isaac. Except now they're making the connection. This time, it's God the Father and God the Son. And this time, the knife will not be stopped. This time, a ram will not jump out of the thicket. But Jesus is the Lamb of God. And he will give his life as a ransom for many. You see, already in chapter 1 of his gospel, John is looking ahead to the cross, to the reason for Christmas. As he's telling us the Christmas story, he's looking to the cross and he's saying, we know what will happen to this son. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came to die in our place. He came from God and he's described lastly, the last part of our verse, as full of grace and truth. That is a combo we have seen before, too. We ran into it a couple weeks ago in verse 17. We're finishing our series in 14. We've been jumping around as it was arranged thematically. But in verse 17, we had read, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, there's that combo, came through Jesus Christ. And this, too, has precedent. In the Old Testament, it is known as chesed and Emmett. Does that sound familiar, Kurt Hinkle? I thought, I'm pretty sure Kurt wrote about this on his blog. So I looked it up this week. And he said it better than I will. But chesed is the word that in English is so hard to translate. It means something like steadfast love. Not just love, but steadfast love. It's covenant love. His loving kindness. The emphasis is on the graciousness of God's love. That we don't deserve this love, and yet God loves us anyway. And Emmet, on the other hand, is concrete. It's unyielding. It's the way things are. But Emmet, along with truth, has this relational aspect to it, so sometimes you'll find it translated faithfulness. So Solomon says in Proverbs 3.3, let love and faithfulness, let chesed and Emmet, Never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And we're almost done, but if I can just take us back to Moses very briefly. When Moses was given two tablets, they were made of stone and they contained the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34. And in that scene, God proclaims his name to Moses and he says, The Lord... It's God's name in the Old Testament. Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and here it is, abounding in love and faithfulness. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is described to us the exact same way. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. He is full of grace and truth. And that's who you and I get to behold this week. That's who we've been waiting for. The Word made flesh, the Son of God in all of His glory, the visible presence of the goodness of God. Are you ready? As we close this morning, how would you describe what you've been waiting for? This past week, we got to live in a virtual snow globe. It was a crazy week. 
my back was sore by the end of this week. <laughs> Don't shake the snow globe, all right? Just let it lie out there now. We went through a week of work, of school as we're in the home stretch, of, of keeping the driveway and the sidewalk clear. There was perhaps for you in your week some Christmas shopping or attending Christmas concerts or doctor's appointments, keeping up with grandkids. There was, of course, the historic Vikings comeback. And I believe right now, Justin, am I right? The World Cup final is airing as I speak. All right, don't spoil it for anybody. All of these things that filled our week. And my brothers and sisters, none of it will last. None of it will last. Not even the best of it. None of it can ultimately fulfill or satisfy. It may be fun for a while. That's of some value, actually. It may be meaningful, and that's of even greater value. But none of it will last like what it means to know God's love and receive His Son and see His glory. And that's what I wish for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we rest this morning in the simple truths of Your Word, in the proclamation of the Gospel that is such good news to our ears. Lord, as we enter this final week of Advent, we ask again, as we did back at the end of November, that you would slow the days down, that we would get to see your goodness in brand new ways this week, even as we tend to the day-to-day things, Lord, that those two would be ordained by you as holy moments where we get to behold our Savior whom we've waited for. Lord, we pray for a covering of your hesed and emmet, your truth and grace over this church family. And we ask this in Jesus' name, the name of our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.